I'm going to give a disclaimer today. Uh, I was very excited about this passage of scripture this week, and I really thought, you know, God spoke to my heart and hope he'll speak to yours. And so I may have gave the impression to people that we're going to have a tremendous message today. Uh, what I meant to say is there's a tremendous passage that we're dealing with today. All right. <laughs> I don't want to ever take the complaint. This is God's word. It's good. I don't know if I'm going to be able to convey it properly. So if, if I take a good passage of scripture and I chop it apart and it's not good, it's my fault, not God's. Okay? So I just want y'all to hear that. The second Samuel chapter 5 is, is an interesting chapter because it, it deals with David making Jerusalem the capital of the people of Israel. And it's a tremendous passage because it has practical applications for you and I. And ultimately, that's why we read the stories of David. We're not looking to gain historical facts about David and the people of Israel, even though they are historical. What we're doing is we're trying to look at these historical facts. We're trying to look at the life of David so that we can gain some insights. We can gain some, some ideas that will help us develop a heart for God. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it practical for us so that we can grow in our relationship with God. This is a wonderful time in the life of David. Uh, he is at his prime. Uh, he, he is on the throne. He is ruling over the people. It is the golden era of the people of Israel. David is about to consolidate the kingdom. You know, he remember, he's been seven and a half years. He's ruled the nation of Judah, the tribe of Judah from Hebron. And now he's about to consolidate with the other 11 tribes in the north. And as we, as we look at this thing, we're going to gain three truths from this passage that hopefully will help you be the person that God wants you to be, but more importantly, that we will be the church that God wants us to be, because that's the application we want to make uh, for us and for the church. So we're going to look at this and see how, how God is going to establish the stronghold. And that's what we're going to look at these words under, establish your stronghold. Remember, Developing a heart for God, if you're going to develop a heart for God, you got to establish your stronghold. Where are you going to go? Let's look at this passage. We won't read the whole thing. We're just going to kind of tell the story, pull out some truths from it, and apply it to our lives. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now remember, there's a rival kingdom. Uh, the northern tribes, the 11 tribes of the north, ha have formed a, 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 a rival kingdom to, to Judah. They placed Ishbosheth on the, on the throne. Abner was the, the leader of the army. Abner was murdered. In chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, Ishbosheth is murdered. Uh, he, he's killed. And so all the people now are coming to David and saying, okay, we want to make David our king. And listen to what they say in verses 1 and 2. We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. So the people come to David, and they make this, this plea. Notice three things that they say about David. It's in your notes or for you to fill in the blank, but I want you to get this, all right? The first thing they recognize is that he is one of them. Notice what it says. He says, we are your own flesh and blood. 
But it's more than just being that, that, that we are kin, or we are of the same people. It was, it was more than that. He said, we are, the like, we are like-minded. We have the same ideas. We have the same values. We have the same principles. We have the same vision. We have the, the same purpose. We have the same flesh and blood. We worship the same God, and we desire to serve the same God. And that's important for us to grasp today. Anytime you, you, you want to attend a church, anytime you want to be a part, part of a church, make sure you identify with those people. Make sure you're, you're in connection with them. Don't go to a church simply because they have a wonderful choir or a music program. Don't go to a church because they have a wonderful senior adult ministry or they have a, a phenomenal children's ministry or a great youth ministry. Although those things are good, that's not why you should do it. I know of people today that will join a church because they have a, they have a wonderful children's ministry or a wonderful youth ministry or a wonderful senior adult ministry. They don't care what they believe as long as they can have a good time, as long as they can have fun. That's not the reason we do it. We, we become a part of a church because we identify with them. We're, we, we understand where they're at and we're of, of one accord. We're of one mind. What is that? We love God and we want to serve God. That's why you should be a part of a church, because you love the Lord your God, and you want to serve God. The people of Israel, they came to David, and they said, said we have something in common. We both want to build up the kingdom of God. We want to build up the kingdom of Israel so that God can be glorified and God can be honored. So the first thing they recognize about David is that he's one of them. Second, they recognize that David had led them to the victory. While Saul was king over Israel, they recognized it was actually David going out and fighting the battles. Maybe the, the, their own echoes were resonating in the ear. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. They recognized that it was David who led them in the victory. Third, they recognized that God had called David to be their spiritual leader. Notice what he says. He says, you will shepherd my people Israel. God had told David, you will shepherd my people Israel. I want you to notice something about that. The people did not belong to David. They were God's people. But God had placed David in a position to shepherd them, to guide them, to care for them, and to lead them. They weren't David's people. They were God's people. And he was called to lead God's people to take care of them, not only to be their political leader, but to be their spiritual leader that God had established over the children of Israel. This is who David was to be. Now remember, David's not just trying to build a kingdom for himself. He's trying to build a kingdom that will honor God. And so because he wants to build a kingdom that will honor God, he assimilates with people of like mind so that the task could be accomplished. It wasn't just going to magically happen by some miracle. If that's the way God wanted to do it, then David would not have had to go through everything he went through. All he had to do is say, here I am, God, and God go, poof, everything's exactly the way I want it. It doesn't work that way. It never does. You know why? Because God wants to use people. God wants to use people to accomplish what he wants. That's why we're here. God is not going to just magically say, boom, everything's going to be exactly the way I want it. He says, no. 
He wants to use God's people to accomplish God's task. That's not the way God works. God has a plan. God has a purpose, but he wants to bring, he wants to use people to bring that plan about. David was a man after God's own heart. And he wanted to, because he was a man after God's own heart, he wanted people around him that could help him carry out the plan, carry out the purpose of God in the life of the nation of Israel. And the same is true for us as well. Listen, we serve a greater purpose than our own as individuals and as a church. We serve a greater purpose than our own. I, I don't want to burst your bubble, but it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about him and his name being glorified. It's about him and his name being recognized. It's about him and his name being proclaimed. That's what it's all about. It's not about any of us whatsoever. And the fact of the matter is, we cannot do it by ourselves. We can't. God never created us to be alone. He created us to be in community. He created us to be in relationships. And if you're going to be everything that God wants you to be, you need to be a part of a people with the same design. People that want to build up God's kingdom. People that want to build up God's kingdom. Listen, if you're here to build up your kingdom, there's two doors out front you ought to walk out today. I'm, I'm being, just being honest with you. But if you're here to build up God's kingdom, then you're welcome. This is what we're here to do, is build up God's kingdom. So David, the people come to David, and they anoint David as, as king. Third time, he's been anointed as king. Why? because he needs a fresh touch for a fresh task. God's anointed him. No longer is he just going to be king over Judah. Now he's going to be king over all 12 tribes. He needs that fresh touch for a fresh task. In, chapter, in verses 1 through 5 of 2 Samuel, we see David being crowned as king. In verse 6, we're going to see David is moving to make Jerusalem his city. It's going to become the city of David. It's going to become the city of God it's going to become the capital of Israel. And that leads us to the second truth. The first one was assemble with people of like mind. Second, assemble together in a special location. Assemble together in a special location. David begins to realize that if he is going to reign effectively in the land of Israel, that he needs a capital. He knows that Hebron is not it. Hebron is located in the southern part of Judah. He needs something more centrally located. Look at what it says in verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. So David comes to the city of Jebus, is the name of the city. In the book of Genesis, it's the name, it's the city of uh, Salem. That's Jerusalem is where it comes from. But they come, he comes to the city of Jebus, the city of Jerusalem. And for over 40 years, the 400 years, not 40, 400 years, the people of Israel have not been able to overthrow Jebus. No matter what they did, it had defied all attempts for the Israelites to overthrow it. Uh, it was 
not really that elaborate. Really, all it was was a city on the top of a mountain with, th with three ravines beside it. It was set on a hill, and there's three valleys on, on each side of it. Uh, the Jebusites had controlled it for, for, for centuries. And what do they do is David comes, they begin to make fun of David. They begin to mock him. Uh, they're laughing at him. Said, David, we could defend this city with, with blind and lame people. There's no way you're going to get in here. And they're laughing. You know, they just don't know who they're messing with, do they? They don't know they're messing with God's anointed. They don't know they're messing with the one that God has chosen to lead the people of Israel. They're filled with pride. They're arrogant. They just don't get it. Now, no details are given. It just says David takes over the city. Now, we know later on that David says that if anyone is going to overthrow Jerusalem, they're going to have to do it through the water shaft, is what David says. Now, we know from 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 5 through 8, which is the parallel passage to this, that Joab goes through the water shaft and enters into the city, and before the Jebusites even know it, Joab overthrows the entire city. But David gave him the idea on how to do that. So that's how Jerusalem became the capital of, G, uh, uh, of Israel. No thrills, you know, nothing exciting about it. That's what happens. Politically, it was a very astute move because it was right on the border between the north and the south, right on the border. We have something today in America. It doesn't look like it now, but when the original 13 colonies were established, they debated about where to put a capital. Some said New York, some said Boston, some said Philadelphia. They decided on a place called Washington, D.C. Why? Because it's halfway between the north and halfway between the south. So politically, it was astute. Does it work now? Now it probably ought to be in something like Kansas City or St. Louis. I don't know. But uh, God forbid it ever went to St. Louis. Uh, you know, I've been to St. Louis, okay? Uh, but, uh, oh, I hope there's nobody from St. Louis here. I love St. Louis, okay? <laughs> but I'm not running for political office, so I can say it, all right? Uh, I, I don't think we have to worry about it coming to Waco, okay? But uh, anyway, so it was a very astute political move. All spiritually, it was an important move because God says, this will be the place where my name will dwell, this is going to be the place where my name will dwell. It's the most important city in biblical times, probably the most important city in history. It has a remarkable history. If you just know anything about the, the city of Jerusalem, it's in Jerusalem where, Dave, where David's son, Solomon, will build the most elaborate and beautiful temple to ever stand on the ground. It's at Jerusalem that battles will be fought. Sometimes the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed and it will be rebuilt. It's in Jerusalem where Jesus will teach some of his greatest teachings. It's in Jerusalem where right outside the city, Jesus will die on a cross. It's in Jerusalem that Jesus will be buried. It's in Jerusalem that Jesus will be raised from the dead. It's in the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem that Jesus will ascend into heaven. And the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 14 that someday Jesus will come and he will set up his kingdom and he will reign on this earth from Jerusalem. It's got to be a wonderful city. 
It's got to be the greatest city that God has ever allowed to exist on this earth. It is a, a, a spiritually important move for the city of Jerusalem. So David is establishing his stronghold by assembling in a, a specific place. And he, he, he meets in a strategic location. Look at what happens in verse 10. And he became more and more powerful. He became more and more powerful. Literally, this is what it says in the Hebrew. David had longer strides and a larger embrace. Hang on to that. David had longer strides and a larger embrace. Here's what I get from that. David grew bigger and better. Bigger and better. He's getting bigger and he's getting better. Hang on to that. He's getting bigger. He's getting better. Literally. David's in his prime. He's ascended to the throne of Israel. He, he is reigning from Israel. What made David so great? Why was David doing so well? Why was he able to prosper? He tells us in chapter 10. I'll be at chapter 5, verse 10, the second part. Because the Lord God Almighty was with him. David had longer strides and he had a larger embrace. Why? Because the Lord Almighty was with him. That's the secret to David's success. That's the secret. It's not 10 steps. It's have God in your life. Have God as primary. If you want to accomplish anything in this world, if you want to do anything of any significance whatsoever, you've got to have God in your life. You got to have God ruling over you. You got to have God in your reign. Now, notice what happens in verse 11. It says that the Hiram, king of Tyre, decides to help David build his palace. And that passage reveals how, how David's influence is growing in the region, or as I like to say, his influence is growing broader. It's growing broader, it's beginning to impact other nations around him. Perhaps the king of Tyre, Hiram, said, Man, I got to do something to get David on my side or I'm going to be next. And so he, he sends timber and he sends these things to help build the palace of David. You know what's happening to the nation of Israel? They're getting bigger, they're getting better, and they're getting broader. Big, I think I've heard that somewhere before. Any of you have heard me pray? You wonder where I got that. I didn't make this stuff up. It's right out of the scriptures. My prayer is always that Western Heights Baptist Church will get bigger, better, and broader. Always. Why? Because it comes right out of the Bible. It may not see it in those terms, but that's what it is. David understands why he's being blessed. Look at verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. He knows the source of his blessings. He knows why he's prosperous. He knows why he's victorious. The Lord was in his life. The Lord is in his life. And because the Lord was in his life, he was getting bigger. He was getting better. He was getting broader. But more importantly, the nation of Israel was getting bigger. It was getting better, and it was getting broader. God was with them. God was moving in the midst of the people. Here's the way it works for us today. We assimilate 
with people. We begin to identify with a group of people that we understand. Well, we, we, we know these people. So why? Because they want to love God and they want to serve God. And we begin to identify with these people. Uh, they, they love the Lord and, and they love people and, and they want to minister to people in the name of God. And so we, we assimilate, we begin to identify, and then, then we, we assemble together as a corporate body. Why? So we can be encouraged. So we can be edified. So we can be equipped. And guess what? So that we can experience God. I don't know if you know that, but we're here to experience God. We're here to experience a fresh anointing from God. That's why we're here. So we do all those things. And as we do that, guess what? As people begin to identify with us, they begin to assemble together. You know what happens? The church begins to grow bigger. It, it begins to grow bigger in numbers because people are identifying with us. They said, yeah, we're on the same page. We're not in the same book. We're in the same page. Well, we know what we're trying to do. We know where we're trying to go. And the church grows bigger in numbers. And then we grow spiritually as we study and we build one another up in the faith. Well, we, we begin to get better in our relationship with God. And we get, begin to get better in our relationships with one another. And then the church begins to grow broader as its influence on others begins, as others begin to take notice. They say, something's going on over there. They're, they're making an impact in people's lives. I want to know what's going on. They begin to hear about what's happening. And they say, we want to be a part of that. And the church gets bigger. And the church gets better. And the church gets broader. That's what happened with David. That's what happened with the kingdom of Israel. That was God's plan. It always was. And guess what? It still is. It's still his plan. It's what God always envisioned. Now, not everything in chapter 5 is great. Verses 13 through 16 reveals that David takes on many wives and concubines, and he has many children. That's going to come back to haunt David in the future. But for the most part, 2 Samuel chapter 5 is a positive chapter about God's blessings upon Israel. David is establishing his stronghold. He assimilates with people of like mind and then assembles them together in a specific location. It's growing bigger. It's growing better. And it's growing broader. Which leads to the third truth. Attack the enemy in God's power. You assimilate together. You, you assimilate with people of like mind. You assemble together in a strategic location. And then you attack the enemy in God's power. And that's why I want to talk now. It's, because what we're going to deal with speaks directly to what we as a church should be about. We're going to talk about the conquest of David. Look at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Wherever the stronghold was, he went down to that place. Isn't that interesting, though? An old enemy raises his head. An old enemy decides, I'm going to cause some problems. I'm going to do some things. You know, it's always that way. You know it's true in your life. Man, when you start getting serious about God, when you start getting serious about what God wants in your life, you know who rears his head? Satan. Satan will always come at you. He's 
He's public enemy number one is Satan. It's the same way in the church. Listen, when we as a church, we get serious. We get serious about God and we get serious about doing what God wants us to do. You know what's going to happen? Satan's going to attack. You know it's true in the church. You know it's true in your personal life. That's what happens. Just about things are going well. Just about when things are are really beginning to, to take off, the enemy rears its ugly head. So the Philistines are gathering to attack. Now, David's a man of war. Uh, he knows how to, how to, how to do war. Uh, he knows how, how, how to do battle. He's trained. He's equipped. He knows what to do. So what does he do? He gets in his stronghold. He, perhaps he thinks, right now, my army's not big enough to take on the entire Philistine army. So he goes to the stronghold. But then notice what happens in verse 19. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? David learned two things. We don't defeat, I'm sorry, David has learned that prayer is essential. He's learned this lesson about prayer. He said, I am not going to do anything till I go to the Lord in prayer. Never underestimate the need for prayer. Never underestimate the importance of prayer. I am so thankful. I am so thankful to God that I gather every Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, either out there under the trees or in the partner Sunday school class, and I pray with some godly men and godly women. You don't know how long I have prayed for that in a church, that I have people that gather together to pray. And what's so unique about it, they're not praying because I asked them to. They were praying before I ever joined them. And I am so thankful those people that gather every Saturday at 8 o'clock. If you're not a part of that group, you are missing a worship and experiencing God. You're missing it. You ought to be there. It's a great time. What do we do? You know what we do? We pray for the church and we pray for our community. That's what we pray for. We're praying for God's power to be experienced in the life of this church so that we can make a difference in the community where God has placed us. I am so thankful for those people they gather every Saturday. David gets his, his answer. Look at uh, the second part of, of verse 19. The Lord answered him, go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. This is where David learned the two things. This is so, so important. David learned that we don't defeat the enemy by staying in the stronghold. We attack. We attack the enemy. We need to understand this truth today, my friends. We have a tendency as a church as we gather here. Why? Because it is our protection from the outside world. The outside world should be protected from us. That's what Jesus said. You remember that? Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, said, I will build my church. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. It says that the church is to be attacking. We ought to be breaking down the strongholds of the enemy, not sitting in our stronghold hoping they don't break us down. We ought to be out there attacking and doing what God has called us to do. We assemble together here to be encouraged, to be equipped, to experience God, and yes, then to engage the enemy. That's what we're supposed to be. David discovered this truth in his own life. So David attacks, causing the enemy to flee. 
and, and, and they run away. Now, David acknowledges that the Lord was the one who gave him the victory. What I found interesting about that, as the Philistines are, are, are fleeing, they leave all their idols behind. All those gold and silver statues they built. You know, I figured what they, what they did is so they realized that their gods were no match to the God of Israel. Amen. I will tell you something, my friends. When we attack the enemy in the power of God's name, the idols of this world will not stand. They will not stand. God is, a, is God. All those other things are fabrications of men and women and ideologies. But when we go and do battle in God's name, idols will fall. And the enemy will be defeated. So it's time to celebrate. Ooh, victory dance. It's so exciting. Well, not quite. Not quite. Look at verse 22. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Raphim. Here's the truth I want you to get. I want you to write it down. Because if you don't write it down, you won't remember it. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty astute. The enemy will never give up. Never. Never. Capital, N-E-V-E-R, never, exclamation point. They would never give up. They may come at you a different way. Just when you think you've won the victory, uh, just when you think you've been successful, they're coming at you, they're persistent. One of the most dangerous times in our life is when you've had a spiritual victory. That's when he comes. Why? Peter tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion Crowling around, prowling around, looking for whom he may devour. You got to be on your guard. The enemy's always on his way. So what did David do? <laughs> he went right back to prayer and sought guidance from God. Now, God doesn't answer him the same way. He does something different. And I think that's what we need to understand. When David prayed the first time, he attacked the frontal assault. This time, God tells, no, David, I don't want you to attack them. I want you to ambush them. And David's learning something here. He's learning that God doesn't always work in the same way. God may not answer your prayer the same way. God doesn't always do things the way he's always done things. And the lesson for us is that for each battle, we need a new direction from God. God doesn't always say, do it the exact same way you've always done it. He says, no. I love it that we serve a God of creativity, don't you? He's creative. You don't believe me? Go back and look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Woo. He's a creative God. And he's not confined by any one method or any one answer to our prayers. So David learns that first, that, that, that God give, provides different directions the second thing that he learns is that God is not captive to any one method. He says God does not have to work exactly the way that we think God should work. The goal was the same, victory over the Philistines. That was the goal. But God had different ways to defeat the enemy. A different method was used. A different attack was used. This is where so many Christians and so many churches make mistakes today. We forget what we are all about. We forget what we're all about. I read a story 
about a buggy com company. They made buggies. Some of you may remember buggies. I don't. Uh, Mitch, you remember buggies? No, no, he remembers buggies, all right? Uh, buggies, uh, you, know, it, you know, it was a horse. It was a, a carriage with a horse, all right? Anyway, they made the best buggies and they made bad buggies. I mean, they made the best buggies you could ever build. And they sold all the buggies. But then along came a man by the name of Henry Ford. And Henry Ford invented a car. And so the people that made the buggy said, well, we'll just build bigger and faster buggies. And they went out of business because they forgot the important principle. You see, they thought they were in the buggy business. No, they were in the transportation business. And they went out of business. Listen, folks. Let me be as candid as I can be. We, as a church... We are in the business of getting the message of the gospel to a lost world. That's it. That's it. That's our business. And what happens in the church is we forget our business. We forget it. We are in the business of communicating to a lost world about a relationship of Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate goal. Listen, the message never changes the gospel is true now as much as it was 2,000 years ago. The gospel message never changes. This book never changes. Truth never changes. However, the packaging might look a little different. It might look a little different than what we're used to, than, than what, we, than what we, we think. God may have us use a different method than we've ever used it before. But what's the purpose? The purpose is to get the gospel message out to the people. That's the message. That's what we're all about. I'm sorry if it hurts your feelings. I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable. I'm not here to make you, un make you comfortable. I'm not here to, to give you warm fuzzies. I'm here to call you to be on mission with God. To do what? To get the gospel to the people out there that have never heard. That's what David learned. He goes, man, you, don't, you can't do it sitting here. You got to get out there and attack the people. Sometimes we're going to use a direct frontal attack. Other times we're going to sneak up on behind them. And, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Uh, that's, yeah, you might catch that someday. All right. Let's go on. This passage gives us a clue on how you do it. Look at verse 24. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees... Move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. God tells David, wait for the blowing of the wind. Wait till you hear it. Wait for the blowing of the wind. Here's what we glean from this. We need to pray, and we wait for the moving of the Spirit of God, and then we jump. We do it. Henry Blackaby <clears throat> said it this way, find out where God is working and then join him in his work. Find out where God is working and then run, rush to get there. The question we have to ask ourselves, where is God working? Where is God moving? And if we don't know where God is working, then we better get to praying and we better start looking because I'll tell you what, God will pass us by. 
he will pass us by. There will come a time when God will take his hand of blessing and say, not going to work with you stubborn and obstinate people. I'll move on to someone that's willing to do what it takes. What about you? What do you want to do? What do you want to see God do in your life? What do you want to see God do in the life of the church? Isn't it amazing how a passage like this has such modern-day applications for us? You know what we call that? We call that a living and breathing Word of God. What was as relevant back in 800-something B.C. is just as relevant today if we would just listen and we will apply those truths to our life and to our situation today. <clears throat> I am a firm believer that God has great plans for Western Heights Baptist Church. I believe it. I wouldn't have came here over three years ago if I didn't believe it. And I'm going to tell you something. God is either going to work with you or he's going to work without you, but God is going to move. God is going to work. The thing you have to decide as a member of this church, do you want to be on board or do you want to be left behind? There's two types of people in the church today. Those who are part of the solution and those who are part of the problem. Which one are you? Are you a part of the solution or are you a part of the problem? I don't know who you are. I don't know who they are. You do. Search down deep in your heart. Ask yourself, God, how can you use me in what you're trying to do to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world? To Waco, to McLennan County, to Texas, to the world. How can God use you? Maybe you can give more. Maybe you can pray more. Maybe you can attend more. Maybe you can help more. Maybe you can serve more. Maybe you can smile more. Oh, I didn't mean that one. Maybe you can, uh, no. Maybe you can love more. Maybe you can love better. Maybe you ought to ask God, God, break my heart for the things that break yours. Oh, break our hearts, God. It ought to break our hearts that people are dying without Jesus Christ. It ought to break our hearts. Some of them are our own children, our own grandchildren. It ought to break our hearts. And while we sit here and worry about if I'm comfortable, if the air conditioner is working, or if I have the right color carpet, people are dying and going to hell without Jesus Christ. Now, those things are important. I'm not belittling them. I'm saying, but it's a matter of priorities. Priorities. You know, P.O., we're doing okay financially. Let me just make a little plug financially. Can I do that, George? Two minutes? All right. We're blessed. We have money in the bank. You know, eventually the money in the bank's going to run out. Did you know that every time that we don't make budget, you know what suffers? It's not the staff. It's not the building. It's not the litters. You know what suffers? Missions and ministry. Missions and ministry. We're going to pay the staff. Uh, you know, if we don't pay the staff, they're going to leave. We're going to pay the staff. We're going to pay our utilities. We're going to pay our, we're going to pay our responsibility to the government. We're going to, pay for, we're going to pay for us to be able to study the Word of God. We're going to pay for those type of things. But what we cannot do if we do not make budget is we cannot give to missions and ministry of the church. That's the first thing we got to cut because we don't have the money to do it. 
How are we going to get the gospel out to people if we can't even use money to get out there and do it? And the thing is, God owns everything. Owns it all. God owns this building. God has a purpose. God has a plan. And as we talked about last Sunday night, our job here on this earth is connect the life-changing gospel of God to people in need of it. That's what our job is. We've got God over here and he's got this wonderful life-giving message. And we got people over here in need of the message that God has. And he says, I think I'll use people to get it to them. That's us. That's us. Have you told anybody about Jesus this week? Have you prayed for anybody to receive Jesus this week? Have you asked God, God, use me? This is what we learn from 2 Samuel chapter 5. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time of opportunity for you just to seek God's in the quietness of your moment. We're not going to ask you to, to come up and do anything publicly. This is between you and God. But I want you to really examine your heart. And ask God, ask God a couple of questions. Ask God, do I love you? Do I love you? And you go, oh, yeah. You go, oh, yes, I love you. And then he asks you, God, how am I demonstrating my love for you? By the way I live. By the way I behave. By what I do. Because the Bible says if you love him, you obey him. If you love him, you'll serve him. Ask yourself that. And then ask yourself one final question. Lord, how can you plug me in to what you want to do to bring the gospel to Waco, Texas? Three questions. God, do I love you? God, how do I reveal my love? And God, plug me in to where I can serve so I can get the gospel in the Waco, Texas. Would you stand with me?